July 4th, 2012. Happy American Fireworks Day. Belated Canadian Fireworks Day to you as well. It's a new time this week for 4 o'clock before they shut down the power at 5. So let's get this thing going. Yes, it's the Arts Report, and it is July 4th, and we are going to talk about so many things this week. Um, first up, we're going to talk about Morco and Spatial Poetics. Then it's on to Coast Modern with James Bates talking to Mike Bernard. We're going to talk to Jeff Berner and Veda Hilly for the Folk Fest. And we're going to talk to Sirish Rayo uh, for Indian Summer. And guess what? We have tickets for this week's Fuse, which is... Um, thematically connected to again and again and again which is at the vancouver art gallery so that's this friday july 6th so keep an eye and an ear on what we're doing here when i say call 604-822-2487 or i'm going to pull up our twitter and you can tweet at me because i love technology and i want to encourage you to follow us on twitter at citr underscore arts report so we are CITR 101.9 FM. We're streaming live on citr.ca slash listen if you're on a mobile phone. Uh, Twitter, I already told you, Facebook is the Arts Report on CITR. Um, here is what we have coming up first. Last week, Wednesday, 9 p.m. at the Russian Hall on Campbell Street, I saw an amazing show called Morco. I actually just posted a Q&A and brief description on CITR.ca, so you can check out the Arts Report category for that info. But it's an audio and animation project by uh, Emma Hendricks and Cindy 
Mochizuki, uh, directed by James Long, lighting by James Proudfoot, and production coordination by Asamori, and technical direction by Elia Kirby. Now, um, Morco is an exploration of space, of remnants, of the monstrous, and you are walked through the Russian hall, through uh, stairways and staircases, and into a dark auditorium where uh, Cindy starts to collect small toys and lights from the floor, um, slowly bringing you into darkness. And then you are led up onto the stage behind the curtains on benches and the floor there's about 30 per people per show there were three shows all together and you watch cindy build a city out of the remnants of her childhood junk room and it is um, accompanied by uh, projected sound text and animation in a very unique way it's, it's actually quite hard to kind of give you a sense of what it would be like but what i will say is that i was engaged thoroughly for the entire 40 minutes which is a lot to say especially when you're not really sure what's going on and the way that they worked with space their themes were space and the monstrous so i thought that i would let cindy tell you a little bit more about this show and it is also going to be um used in spatial poetic some monster which is coming up tomorrow so this is a uh, Cindy uh, Machizuki speaking a little bit about her uh, experience per, uh, performing this um, building of the city out of books and toys and, and cups and, and a Hot Wheels plastic track. Now that you've finished the two nights, what elements went as expected and which ones were surprising? Okay. Well, I think that the overall collaboration went really well, like just the different um, the different artistic disciplines that kind of came together and the different people that we're working with, Jamie Long, Emma Hendricks, myself, Asamori, James Proudfoot, like I think that aspect went really well. And I think for me it was um, just an interesting collaboration because it just seemed like the sound and the animation and the performance and all, it just kind of all came together really nicely. Um and that it made sense that um, somewhere in the process we decided to use things from my childhood um, basement cellar closet. And I think that came together nicely. Like that made sense to me once it went up and um, it was received by an audience. Um, so this idea of kind of building a landscape with these objects while listening to these interviews with people around monsters, I think... Um, I'm not sure if, it, I, if I... I'm at a place where I can, or I can completely talk talk about it, and it makes complete sense to me myself. But um, it just kind of made it just kind of worked, I think, in a way. Um, and that there's still an openness to uh, tweak and sort of redevelop and keep working on the project as well, too. Mm-hmm. So I think it opened up different possibilities for us to explore um, and carry on in the future for sure. And then what didn't? What were you saying? What didn't work? Oh, not necessarily what didn't work, but what kind of what kind of things happened that were surprising that you didn't well, expect? Well, for sure, I think I had mentioned to you. I think on the Tuesday or the Wednesday night performance, there was a little part where I built the road, and I think that maybe it was the night that you weren't there, the one before it, the road. Like I just couldn't complete the road, and I think 
And I already knew going in that there would be some nights, I'm sure, just because of the precariousness of everything, that something may fall or something may go wrong. So you just kind of have to go with it. So um, it's usually something that I would probably avoid because I just fear those sort of things. But um, the fact that we worked it in and that it's part of the show was kind of, it worked out in the end, but it was just something that I'm, that every time I perform it, I'm going to be like, okay, there is a chance that this road will fall apart or that the hockey rink thing would blare in the middle, like it's because it's just so old that it just turned itself on. So there's just <laughs> stuff that you can't control. Well, that, I mean, that probably speaks to the actual point of the piece anyway, right? The yeah, idea of, that's true. You know, control within space and yeah. um, fears and, you know, those kind of experiences. I mean, from my from my viewer's audience point of view, um, I really felt like, obviously, there's, um, there's a theme of space. So you're filling up space with things, with visuals, um, emotions, auditory experience uh-huh. so you're filling up this small space and then the other theme that ties into it is monsters or the monstrous yeah. and um you know you hear you heard a lot of um descriptions um you're listening to while you're building this this city of junk i guess you could one person one person's trash <laughs> is another person's treasure right you hear these descriptions of monsters do you have a description of a monster that applies to your life experience I do. I do have different kinds of monsters. I think I have. I think I have monsters that are more connected to dreams. I don't know if they're necessarily monsters that may maybe ghosts or spirits or something. Um, and I think I grew up. Um, my mom is from Japan, so we grew up listening to and hearing stories that were a lot around Japanese folklore. And there's a lot of different creatures and shapeshifters. So I think, as a small child that's just something that was just part of my psyche like it's just something that was just kind of normal like before bed my mom would tell me like a a somewhat semi-creepy story about a fox woman and like and how she would trick people and stuff and it just would be part of our sort of day-to-day language so for me I think monsters exist in that way through it came through stories but then also I think there are specific fears or what I have that I may personify as a monster for sure Thank you, Cindy. Uh, Cindy's work with Emma and the rest of the team uh, was really moving. And if you ever want to know how to use oral history or interviews in a really creative way, this is one to watch. Um, The auditory parts, uh, four sections of them will be used in Spatial Poetics, 11, Some Monster, 7.30, July 5th at the SFU Woodward's uh, Studio D. So that's on 149 West Hastings Street, Vancouver. Tickets are 12 or $10 at brownpapertickets.com. It's actually a like a pre-event for the Powell Street Festival. You can check out all the information about the Powell Street Festival at powellstreetfestival.com. And uh, this uh, edition of the Spatial Poetic Series was curated by Vanessa Kwan and features uh, interdisciplinary mashups, including electroacoustic sound composer Yoto, Yota Kobayashi with flautist and visual artist Mark Takeshi McGregor, musician and visual artist Andrew Lee with musician Alex Sang Hung Tai, and experimental cellist Peggy Lee with dancer Delia Brett. And um, 
it's an evening of just collaborative performances by Asian Canadian artists um, with the idea of the chimera or hybrid monster. So that fits really well in with uh, Morco, which is actually um, one of the meanings of Morco is a Finnish, Finnish word for boogeyman or bugabear. Um, because we won't be on air, or I won't be producing new stuff. We'll see if we have a co-host at the time. Um, we'll be back on August 8th after the festival. So a little bit of information about that. It's the 36th annual Powell Street Festival, Saturday, August 4th, and Sunday, August 5th, um, 11.30 a.m. to 7 p.m. And it's at Oppenheimer Park, the Fire Hall Art Center on Cordova, the Vancouver Japanese Language School and Japanese Hall on Alexander and the Gold Corp Center for the Arts on West Hastings. It's all free during the day and it's the longest running community celebration in Vancouver. The theme for 2012 is Bing Bang Zai. Big Bang Zai. Cindy herself uh, actually has curated spatial poetics before so she's uh, no stranger to that and she will be continuing to develop Morco Plus, she is Cineworks local artist in residence for 2012. And um, her works in general explore memory and history and the construction of narratives. So in Morco, it used um, one of the narratives she used was a conversation with her mother and her collection of objects from her childhood and her past. And her residency will be focusing on the project Shiro Yagi which will take one piece of sheet music from her paternal grandfather's archives, the only remaining piece. And it's a piece of sheet music that will be the starting point of her narrative. So that'll actually open, have an open studio during Swarm, which we will uh, cover later in the year. So that will be, um, they're doing an artist talk about that. Layer artist talk, Thursday, July 19th, 2012. Cineworks Annex, 235 Alexander Street. And uh, you can actually Google... Uh, Cinework um, or you can check out more information on cindymuchizuki.com Alright, we are going to take a quick break and when we come back James Bates is going to tell us about Coast Modern which uh, had two sold out screenings at Vancouver's Doxa Documentary Film Festival and now has a theatrical run at Van City Theatre July 6th to 12th. So please, please, please stay tuned. The Queer Arts Festival in Vancouver is the annual showcase that celebrates queer arts and artists. The festival features a curated visual arts exhibit, a community art show, and three dynamic weeks of cutting-edge performances and workshops from all artistic disciplines, including music, dance, theatre, literary, and media art. This year's theme is Random Acts of Queerness. The festival runs July 31st to August 18th. For more info, visit QueerArtsFestival.com. Sponsored by CITR 101.9 FM. Utown at UPC Summer Festival is taking place Saturday, July 7th. Join in the summer fun and get to know your Utown at UBC community. The main event takes place at Spencer Field, 11 a.m. until 3 p.m. Come and enjoy games like bingo and giant Jenga, have your face painted, and take part in a community art project. There will be entertainment throughout the day and a delicious barbecue, plus skating at Thunderbird Arena and a free aquatic play day at the Aquatic Center. For more information, go to planning.ubc.ca slash summerfestival. Sponsored by CITR 101.9 FM. And we are back. Uh, we will hopefully have some coverage for you when we get back in August of the Queer Arts Festival because it'll be right around the same time. And it's going to be nice to use that time to set up a whole bunch of amazing interviews that we can run through August. But right now, 
Coast Modern, uh, co-directed by Gavin Froome and Mike Bernard. Coast Modern is an independent documentary that explores uh, Pacific Northwest uh, from L.A. to Vancouver modernist design and architecture. And as I mentioned, it had two sold-out screenings at DOXA and will be running from July 6th to 12th. Uh, you can look at the trailer and everything at www.coastmodernfilm.com. But lucky for you, James Bates has actually uh, reviewed the film and has talked to the director, Mike Bernard. Um, welcome to the show, James. Hello. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, I interviewed Mike Bernard, who co-directed the film with Gavin Froome. And uh, it was actually originally produced for the Knowledge Network. Uh, and, and as you said, it made a splash at DOXA and is getting a theatrical release now. Um, I talked to, to Mike about uh, how, how the film made interesting connections between design and nature and architecture and, and health. Um, you know, a case is made for the film for modernism, actually, as not only a rejection of overly ornamental and traditional designs, but... Um, also as, as a way for, for people to connect with nature and a, and a sense of place. Um, but it also kind of wound up uh, uh, focusing on, on what Mike actually termed in, in the full uned- unedited interview. Which as, we, uh, we can post later. Yeah, as, as um, the middle class adventure on the West Coast. It kind of wound up focusing on that a little bit. But um, so we addressed that uh, uh, as well as the connection between uh, place and, and, and architecture and nature and all that stuff in the uh, in the interview. And uh, just before we get to the interview, we'll do an excerpt and we can post the full thing. Um, now, what did you think of the film itself? Like you saw it. I saw it. Mm-hmm. Um, I know it reminded me a lot of films like uh, Helvetica or Objectified that look at design. Um, and you had thoughts on it as well. Um, well, it was it was a really interesting uh, uh, film because because of this connection that it draws to nature and and, and it's um, I think it makes a really good uh, uh, point about uh, uh, our our attention to to design and it kind of um, uh, uh, also questions our questions our, our lack of attention to design and um, uh, but it, but it had these it had these certain problems which may not have actually been problems with the film it had it had this problem of of uh you know you wind up focusing on on uh the houses of the the, the very wealthy because mm-hmm. that's who can afford to pay attention to design and architecture yeah it's almost like the film kind of highlighted that it didn't address it too much but it did highlight um you know the actual cost of building a beautiful home and, and talks about manufacturing and you know what it is just a gorgeous film like it i don't really want is, to yeah. yeah underplay how aesthetically just gorgeous it is and there's just pieces of art these homes um what is art is a whole discussion in and of itself so uh we're gonna uh, hear from uh james talking to mike bernard about the film and um that uh, will happen next and then after that we will be talking about the folk fest All right, so here's Mike, Bernard, and James speaking about Coast Modern. What is the the feeling or the the message that you wanted to evoke with the film? I would say the first round of things was to share some of this work, some of it's been sort of forgotten. You know, it's a little bit of it is kind of being pulled off the shelves. Um, Underneath that, though, I mean, architecture is just such an intersection of the drives and sort of ethos of a particular society or a, a, a point in history so 
the other aspects of, of modernism, particularly on the West Coast, we were interested in were, you know, early on the architects were, were more ecologically sensitive than the times they were working in were, you know, were really ready for. So that was one of the strands we wanted to sort of remind people that this, you know, sensitivity to nature and, and a, a real consideration about materials and things has been around for quite a while. Like, you know, dwell and green architecture have, have dusted it off and, you know, you know, sort of like made it new again and at a very pertinent time. But um, these guys were thinking along those lines in, in the early days. And when I see these guys, I'm thinking of like Schindler and Neutra as, as the innovators. And then up here, guys like, you know, Barry Downs. and We had Arthur Erickson, uh, a home that he designed on there. And I go to school at SFU, actually. Oh, yeah. And uh, uh, Erickson designed the, the campus, or a lot of it, uh, up there. Uh, I was wondering why... Uh, you stuck to just homes when you could uh, could have branched out to larger buildings. Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. I think Gavin, my co-director, and I are both most drawn to the residential form. Like, there's just there's there's such an expression. There's there's a way that people can see their their lives happening in that space. Like, it's very it's very direct. It's sort of like the meal that's on your plate, uh, as opposed to discussing the movement of grain across you know ports and through countries or something. It's it's really the the kind of front lines where people get to experience this stuff and they can imagine it you know being part of their life in the most direct way. Also, as a more practical thing, um, the territory in terms of space and time that we bit off. It's the the film covers 1922 uh, to the present day Los Angeles to Vancouver. Right. So you know very quickly as we got into this project, we realized that we had a lot to deal with. You know the the single family residential in a lot of ways is is. It's kind of it's a luxury item. It's a little bit of an antique yeah. in the sense that we're running out of space and yeah. the resources don't allow for everybody to have their their ranch. And this isn't really a criticism of the film, but I, I couldn't escape the fact watching it that that I was watching uh, some some fairly affluent people. And you kind of touched on it. Uh, these homes are kind of luxury items. The fairly affluent people kind of talk, uh, uh, mostly white as well. Uh, talk about uh, these these. Uh, expensive properties that they have do you think that uh, we're we're making any progress with our spaces uh, I mean, modernism in, in the film people talk about modernism it's not just a, uh, a style of architecture it's it's a way of thinking um, so so what do, what do you think about that in, in terms it's, of like urban density and some of the, yep, some of the no that's a, that's a great criticism and it's it's something that you know uh, it never left the edit suite what we chose to do um, in the end, there was a few, in the third act, we had a few projects. One is um, at the corner of Kiefer and Hawks uh, in in Strathcona that called Coos Corner, and it's a multifamily kind of rebuild of an old garage that was there. We also talked with um, a guy in, in San Francisco named David Baker who's doing, you know, multifamily, like, you know, condo-y projects that are like lead platinum, very humanely built, and, and you know, using some of the principles and the ideas that, that the modernist project supplied and taking them into ways, in, into methods of building and, and attitudes about construction that are bringing great things to lots of people for low prices, right? So this was, you know, we, in a way, the way we started was the way we had to finish the film, but the, the nice thing is a lot of the material that didn't make it and a lot of the projects that I'm describing... Um, that we have shot and interviewed are going to end up on our website as part of a bigger discussion about this stuff. There's a connection in the film made between modernist architecture and and being sort of integrated with nature, our spaces being integrated with nature. You know, 
everybody that was involved in film feels pretty passionately about you know that the human connection to nature, the human root in nature, right. is is not only you know um, sort of tenuous right now and and set up in a way that's, that's sort of destructive. Um, it's it's also one of the keys to to living a, a great life. So. In a way, it feels like in terms of society and, and culture and all these things right now, and, and hopefully this architecture could be one of the facilitating routes through this, it feels like uh, to, to survive and to thrive at the same time, we need to, you know, understand ourselves as part of something that's larger, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, our cities don't end at the concrete and they don't end at the city limits, you know. Um, that, you know, living a truly sort of biologically aware life involves being integrated with nature. So it's, it's hard to say. I mean, I think being aware of, uh, of how the, a day transitions, being aware of how, uh, you know, plants grow, all those things, I think, start the thinking process. If people aren't aware of themselves as being part of nature and being connected to it, those are little clues that, you know, you never know when somebody's going to have that aha moment and be like, well, holy smokes, this whole thing is... You know, we're involved in this and we can't just, you know, use it up and, you know, truck stuff out to dump out in the woods. Overall, in, in all the things we do in society in the next decades, those are, we, we need all the little clues we can get. So if uh, if people just watching, as I say, the transition of a day or seeing or see life growing in some atrium in the in the building they work in, I mean, that's that's just, that's good and it's healthy. It's it's good for you to, to have that kind of uh, that connection. One of the books that supplied a lot of the... Um, the kind of intrigue for us in the early part of this film was written by Alain de Baton called The Architecture of Happiness. And he talks about this idea that you can you can only be as conscious as you can afford to be um, if you're put into a space that isn't doesn't really reflect uh, what you want or what you need. It's not very pleasant to be in. And then you end up with this this mode that people go into when they're on the sky train or something where you're literally your senses just close down and you're not you, you can't you as Ellen de Baton says you can't afford to be aware of what's around you because it's just so unpleasant so that's again that's part of what I think we can learn from architecture in our lives in general into the you know urban planning and into all these other things is you know when you give people uh, a, an environment that they want to be in and they feel connected and engaged uh, you you know there's a dynamic and a sort of sense of possibility that can come out of those that you know that might not be present in in a, a space where people are are less comfortable or is, is just less well thought out so that was mike um james was there anything from that interview that you know was surprising or particularly interesting um when you you know from between seeing the film and, and talking to mike he was a very laid-back guy, and, and, he, and he had a lot to say. It was difficult to cut the interview down, um, and he re- he really responded well to the, the criticisms. And, and and like again, I wasn't even sure if if I if that was really a criticism of the film yeah, itself. Yeah, it's more or like an like interesting thing the film brought up. A society a societal kind of condition that you that you have to work with, I guess, uh, or one of the societal conditions that you have to work with when you're making a documentary film. He was saying to me um, on his way out that. Uh, like just to talk about the film itself for a second, the the real feeling there are talking heads in it, and there's all this beautiful, just absolutely amazing cinematography. Like it was just gorgeous. And um, he said that Helvetica, which is another favorite film of mine, which is a lot of talking heads talking about design um, with some amazing art in it. Uh, they came out while he was producing this piece, and so it actually really helped sell this as a larger project because it showed right. that. Yeah, people can be interested in that kind of thing and also showed them some ways to actually do it. 
So um, Coast Modern, uh, it is the website is www.coastmodernfilm.com and that you can look at you know all the um, extra content etc um, it was it's playing at Van City Theatre so that's the VIF Theatre Vancouver International Film Festival uh, on Friday July 6th and Saturday July 7th at 6.45pm you can buy tickets online uh, at vif.org and uh, it's 11 bucks and it's about an hour and um, please uh, check it out. Yeah, it says the filmmakers will be in attendance uh, on the 6th and 7th, and it goes till the 12th. Right, right, right. So um, that is a good point. So, yes, yeah, so the fifth and this, uh, the 6th and the 7th, Friday and Saturday, you can speak to um, Mike and Gavin, the other director, and then you can see it anytime until the 12th. Um, thanks very much, James. You're going to stick around and hang out? I will stick around, yes. Ah, I'm people want to be near me whatever like it's just the way it is um so uh check that out and also citr community partner of uh the vancouver folk fest which is coming up next week the 13th to the 15th um you can check out all the lineup on the festival.bc.ca but first and foremost um i would really like to talk about this gentleman That's Jeff Burner. He is a festival favorite, and he is a Klesner punk, or at least that's one of the way he's been described. Uh, for those of you who don't know, and I was one of them, a Kle- Klezmer music is the musical tradition of uh, Eastern European Jews, and it's played by professional musicians called Klezmorim. And the genre originally is, um, you know, dance tunes, instrumental display pieces for weddings and other celebrations. And its origins is in uh, Eastern Europe. Um, And then generally when it came to the United States, uh, you know, the Yiddish-speaking Jewish immigrants from Eastern Europe uh, combined it with American jazz. And so there's been a bit of a revival lately. um, But, uh, you know, Jeff Berner, he actually wants to bring it back um, to its roots, which is irony you know, dirty sounds for the pub that are also political and talk about culture. And so um, he's recently played the Jazz Fest with Balkan Beatbox, which we also sponsored that show. We're everywhere. And he's going to be playing the Folk Fest all through the fest, including uh, the uh, stage three on the evenings, including 5 p.m. Friday, the 15th, uh, sorry, the 13th for a full concert. So um, his music's really catchy. It's that polka drinking song rhythm with the lyrics and themes that are raw, direct, poignant, hilarious, mostly both. This is one of my favorite songs, Lucky Goddamn Jew. And um, it uh, takes biting commentary uh, about the current state of um, the kind of nomadic Jew and, you know, Israel and, and the world's point of view. So let's listen to a little bit of Jeff talking about his upcoming shows at the Folk Fest, his recent uh, release, award-winning release, Victory Party, with uh, Mint Records in Montreal, and he's the recipient of the Canadian Folk Music Award for Pushing the Boundaries. 
the goddamn Jew, would that be a, a good introduction for people into your kind of sure. way you're approaching the politics of your music? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. You know, it's uh, and and that's based on a traditional like it, it took as a as a jumping off point. It took a song called Mazal Dikar Yid, which is an old song, and uh, I sort of uh, updated it, but a lot of the themes are are the same. Sometimes. The stuff where you write, where you hear it, and you think, "Well, that's the modern element." That turns out to be the thing that's hundreds of years old in the in the song. It's kind of it can be surprising sometimes. What I mean, because radical Jewish culture has been around for for centuries now. I mean, it was it was you know, uh, Karl Marx was a Jew, <laughs> so it was. Uh, there's a lot of. Uh, um, uh, stuff where you hear it and you think, well, that's the modern element that he's bringing in, but it, it can often be something from uh, from the old stuff that, that I found that's exciting because it because it, it's from other generations doing with very similar ideas and values to the to what we have now. Like we, I think a lot of there's a lot of false innovation that goes on in culture and music where people announce that they've Never before has anyone done this. And then if you just look far enough, you'll actually find out that, that, it was, that it's been around for ages. You know, you just played the Jazz Fest. And mm-hmm. how, did, how did that show go? It was fantastic. It was surprising how well it went. I mean, Balkan Beatbox are a big band with a big dance sound, and their whole thing is to make people move. And, uh, you know, my stuff is a bit more uh, thinky, listening kind of stuff sometimes. But we decided to try to warm the audience up and get them on the floor dancing, and, and it was really... It, it worked. Like, we had a whole mass of people. We brought them all down from their seats to the front, and, and they were dancing up a storm. So it was really... It was, it was really uh, nice to know that we as a trio we can make uh, we can kind of cook like that so, so that we'll do a fair amount of that at the folk festival as well I really love playing with Wayne Adams and Diona Davies Those, that's my original trio setup and uh, whenever it's financially and logistically possible to get us all together it's kind of it's a big treat for me and, uh, and so Vancouver Folk Festival is one of those places where they can afford to make that happen, and uh, that, that'll that'll be really fun. Yeah, we um, we sponsored Balkan Beatbox, and we are a community partner with the Folk Fest, and I think we choose shows that we know are going to be both true to the festival spirit, but also young and energetic, and you know, new. And so, um, is there anything that? Uh, you're planning or hoping for the folk festival that will um, that might be either a little different or you know just for people what they can uh, hope to see the folk festival is, is a special kind of it has a brigadoon like quality to it you know it's this town that comes into being once a year in the same spot and you wouldn't recognize it if you were on the field at Jericho Beach any other time of the year and, and it's just but all these tents and all these people 
and all this music and, and food and everything just suddenly comes into being. And it, it's all more or less in the same place as it was the year before and the year before, going back you know, 35 years now. And so it's a place where people can come together, especially people with progressive uh, political uh, ideas, and you can really feel a sense of community, like you're not alone. And then through music, you can all connect, and and that's what we want to to we want we want to tap into that kind of river of good energy that's been going through that festival for 35 years. We're actually tight with Mint Records. They actually started at CITR, and I wanted to know a little bit about um, what their influence was and kind of how that process was different making Victory Party and what some of the responses to that project have been, what, you, what you've enjoyed about it. Well, Mint Records, has, has, the record wouldn't have happened without Mint Records. Without, uh, I, mean, I met with Randy and Bees and uh, talked about what I wanted to do, and they just were excited about that. And they, and, and they have a, always had a policy of just supporting their artists. They never say, well, we'd like a little bit more of this or a little bit more of that on the record. They give, they're, they're one of the only labels that give total artistic control to their people. And, uh, and they, they, you know, they paid the bill for it. We, we had, we did it in Montreal in a nice studio with, you know, about five or six different musicians all at once. And, and, uh, they paid for the art. It was a very expensive record for me you know i would never have been able to do it without them they're uh, one of the tracks that is fun in your heart well yeah i mean deloy police is an is based on an old jewish song it means down with the police uh or uh um f-u-c-k the police i remember I, that was the one actually that stood out to me i was like oh bold <laughs> But that's actually an old song, you know, uh, that people sang in the streets and in Russia and in England, and uh, it, it's a, it, so it's an example of how, as I was saying, like the tradition can be much more radical. You know, the, the elements that you might think would be the modern ones are actually the oldest elements of the song, and um, it's uh, so uh, for me that that's what that's how. I approach folk music, and I think that the folk festival has really the people who, like Linda Tanaka, who books it and stuff, really understand that approach to folk music as well, making it um, relevant by connecting with people with uh, the you know actual you know living people and the issues that they're living through. Played a lot of places and I'll play them all again and Everywhere I go I hear the same old thing again Somebody dies in police custody Soon there are questions from the family At first the situation makes the lawmen look so filthy But they investigate themselves and it turns out that they're not guilty and yes, they do say F-U-C-K, the police, which is why I'm going to turn that down. Um, it, he's an amazing artist. I, I really, really enjoyed him. So uh, I would 
recommend checking him out at the Folk Festival on Friday night around 5 o'clock um, on stage 3. And he'll be playing throughout the concert. Um, we talked more about American Idol and art and activism and Mint Records and, and all of that. So if you want to do that, uh, hear the entire 20 minutes, please check out our Mixed Cloud. Um, you can check out more of his stuff at uh, jeffburner.com. G-E-O-F-F-B-E-R-N-E-R. Uh, and uh, a little bit more about him on the festival.bc. Coming up for Jeff, uh, we have a a novel in 2013 with Dundurn Press and another album in connection with the novel of covers of artists doing his work. Um, It's going to be called Festival Man and it's about a psychotic alcoholic music manager at the Calgary Folk Festival. Um, So I have no idea if that's based on uh, one of his own experiences, but um, I hope no one sues. So next up, uh, we're going to talk a little bit. We're going to keep doing the Folk Fest, okay? Next up, we have uh, Vida, uh, sorry, Veda Hilly, who uh, is a very uh, prolific songwriter. And uh, she recently won an award, two awards, Jessie's, uh, from the uh, Jessie Richardson Theatre Awards um, about for her uh, show Craigslist Cantata with Bill Richardson. And right now we're listening to Bedlam, songs from, from the Songs from Silver Folk Fest 2002, the 25th anniversary. It's also on Return of the Killdeer in 2005. And you can listen to it at vedahilly.com. And she'll be playing uh, Vancouver Folk Fest from 6 uh, or 6.30 on the 15th. Um, she's second up on the main stage. And she writes songs uh, and shows about nature and science, Emily Carr, Craigslist, just to name a few. She's been conf- uh, composing for dance, film, theater, and special events since 94. And she did the song cycle, Songs from Silver, including this song, back in 2002 for the 25th anniversary. And she's back this year. This year, she's composing for the Memory Project. And the Memory Project, well, she'll tell you a little bit about it. But the Memory Project is based on your memories. She's writing songs and she'll be performing them at the Folk Fest. Uh, we talked about a little bit about Do You Want What I've Got, the Craigslist Cantata. Um, we talked about uh, the Memory Project and her experiences with the Folk Fest. And um, she uh, has a really great catalog, and we do have a lot more of it at CATR, so request it if that's, uh, if that's something that you're interested in. So here we have uh, me talking to Veda Hill, Hilly, about uh, starting off with uh, winning those Jessies. So you just won an award for the Craigslist Cantata with Bill Richardson? That's right. We got two Jessies, actually. Exactly. Congratulations. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. I'm quite chuffed. Now, on a scale of normal to super weird, how did working on the Craigslist Cantata compare to your other projects? Because I know that it was something that was really unique and actually really took off. Well, it was quite a a departure in some ways, although I've been talking for years about writing a full-length musical. And so the fact that it sort of happened a bit more naturally or with with collaborators with cohorts that made it much easier because for a long time I've talked about doing something like that and I've never quite found the thing 
And that was, in fact, why we did the 20-minute musicals back in 2009, which is where it started. Is I, I had tried for so long to write a full-length thing, and nothing was happening. So I said, well, what if we try and write something that's 20 minutes long and, uh, and, and see if we can sneak into it that way? And then, uh, and then we did, and it was, I guess it was popular enough and interesting enough at that point that we decided to press forward with the help of the Arts Club and the Push Festival. So that was, uh, I guess the weird thing about it was that it took so long, but that was so great that I'm thinking now that maybe I should spend three years writing everything. We should all be so lucky. <laughs> I know, I know. It was great. Well, although it was also interesting because often I'm, for these sort of things, I'm, it's a commission and I'm, I'm paid to write. And this one was more of a, uh, it started as a commission, the first bit, but then the expansion, we just decided to take it on. So that, that's always a good sign, I think, when people are willing to work without, uh, without cash up front. That means something's going on. And the, the Folk Fest that's coming up, you've been involved with the Folk Fest for a while now. Uh, yeah, it's a, very, it's a long and important relationship for me. I started attending the festival when I was 12, and it totally blew my mind which is actually one of the names of one of the songs that we're going to be doing this weekend. Um, and then, uh, so so in 92, when I put out my first little cassette back in the day, Gary Crystal called me up and said, would you like to play the Folk Fest? So it was, a, that was, a, again, kind of a, an earth-shattering moment because I had at that point been playing at little cafes and things around town and really just getting started. So the fact that he programmed me at my favorite festival when I was so young, it was it was one of those, it's probably the only, you know, those career-changing moments. Often career changes are long and slow and interesting and frustrating, and that was one of those huge leaps for me. Um, and then uh, I've played it many times since, and then I was honored in 2002 to write a song cycle for the 25th anniversary which became the song cycle Silver, um, which we, I, we wrote, uh, I wrote with, uh, I guess they were pleased with it because they asked me to do another one for the 35th. And this one is based uh, on very specific people's memories of the festival. So like other projects that I've done, we gathered uh, letters and emails from people, and then I'm writing the lyrics to the songs based on uh, that language. Are you going to be performing those songs at the Fest? Yeah, we'll, we'll, we're going to perform them on Sunday night. I've got a choir of 25 people and my rock band, and uh, it should be it should be very clap-alongable. To Jeff Berner, um, and he was talking about how he really loves how the Folk Fest kind of creates this, this city, this community, this kind of pop-up uh, mm. community, and they really support artist expression. Do you have a, a favorite memory besides, of course, getting to play it for the very first time that um, that has inspired you to keep going? For me, I guess the, the favorite times for me were when I was uh, probably around 16, 17, 18, and I would go with my girlfriends every year. It was very, you know, it was a highlight of our summer. Those summers have all kind of blended together, but I remember... Uh, I have a, we have a photograph of the three of us dancing at the side of stage five that I, I'm very fond of, looking like, you know, awkward teenage hippie, happy people. I also I have a very strong memory of the first time I saw Spirit of the West and just bursting into tears. And <laughs> you know, it's it, there have been so many transportive musical moments there that, that count. 
And I think that that's amazing. And I, I don't get that as often anymore. And I thought that maybe, uh, maybe the festival used to be better. But then I've watched my uh, stepdaughter, who's now 19, have exactly the same experience starting from when she was a teenager and could start to roam around by herself with her friends. And she has exactly the same thing going on. So it's clearly uh, a special place where, where extraordinary things happen. Um, do you have a favorite memory that someone has submitted? Oh, well, I don't want to play favorites too much. Aside from the memory submitted, the festival also gave me a whole bunch of fan mail for the festival over the years. And I found this super sweet uh, fan mail from this 13-year-old girl in 1992, Chloe Ronet. And she wrote this really lovely little letter just talking about the same stuff I've just been saying that that she and her friend go every year and it's a ritual and they love it and and uh, and she drew this little picture of Pete the Seagull and it was a sweet letter and so I was working that as a song it's got some nice language in it and then I thought well geez that was in 92 she's in her early 30s now maybe she still lives in Vancouver maybe she's going to be at the festival I should get in touch and see if she's going to be around and so I googled her and she's uh, she's like a rising rock star in East London. She's in this cool post-punk band and, and uh, playing in Paris all the time. And so I got in touch with her to say, hey, I'm writing this song about you. Is that, uh, is that cool? And we've had this very nice back and forth. But I just love that she has, has gone on to become a musician in her own right. And I guess it echoed my story in that way, too. And that was Veda Hilly. Thank you very much to her for joining um, me this morning. Um, as I mentioned, she has actually won two Jessies uh, for Outstanding Sound Design or Original Composition and for Small Theatre and Outstanding Original Script. Um, and that was presented at the 2012 Push Festival with the Arts Club. And she will be performing at the Folk Fest uh, around 6.30 on the 15th. She'll be about second up on the main stage. And uh, we are currently playing Bedlam. Songs from Silver, which was written for the Folk Fest 2002, 25th anniversary. Coming up next for her is uh, her latest uh, her latest work, rather, is Young St. Marie, which is songs by Neil Young and Buffy St. Marie, sung by Veda and the CBC Radio Orchestra. And Do You Want What I've Got, new show tunes from Broadway and Canby. And that contains a live version of the Craigslist Cantata studio recordings from UFO and a bunch of other uh, really cool things. Coming up next, she's doing a project with some teenagers, as she referred to them, called uh, Peter Panties, I Love You. And uh, it is, uh, again, a theatrical show. So check out that. Um, if you want to submit to the Memory Project, you still have some time. So please go on to uh, thefest.bc.ca or uh, VFM, FM Memory Project. <laughs> so VFMF memoryproject.tumblr.com Alright, we are going to take one more break and when we come back we are going to talk about Indian Summer Festival. We are going to give a couple of quick announcements and while we are taking this break I would like you to call in and get those Fuse tickets. 604-822-2487 That's 604-822-2487 
on News 101. Right here on News 101. Right here on News 101. What motivated you to become a candidate in the provincial election? The media portrayal of last week's protest that resulted in polarizing images of black-clad activists taking to the streets. He was just explaining to us the reason why they wanted to show this film on campus. The official stance is that we are for the Olympics. News 101 reporter Brad Pepping was there. By discriminating against homeless people in Vancouver, there's a disproportionate impact on Aboriginal people as well as people with disabilities. I was pretty outraged. I mean, it is outrageous. In-depth coverage from an alternative perspective. News 101 is Vancouver's only live, volunteer-produced student and community newscast, bringing you local, national, and international news from an alternative perspective. Tune in Mondays and Fridays at 5 p.m. right here on CITR 101.9 FM Vancouver. Live streaming and podcasts are available online at citr.ca. Just a quick note in the break here, uh, you are calling for Fuse at the Vancouver Art Gallery, and uh, that's happening this week. It's uh, uh, on Friday. It's $25 per ticket value, so 50 bucks worth of free stuff, um, and uh, it's an amazing art party based around their current um, showcase again and again and again, and there's music and all sorts of fun stuff, and it is family-friendly. Imaginary cities. Darkness turned to light. Back from their international tour. When I found this Winnipeg band is known for being exuberant and anthemic at times, moody and soulful at others. Don't miss Imaginary Cities, live at the Waldorf on July 12th. Buy your tickets at LiveNation.com, TicketWeb, or charge by phone at 1-888-222-6666.